0: Hey, Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called How Jeremiah Almost Died and is the 10th teaching in our study through the book of Jeremiah. It was taught by Mark Nelson on January 2nd, 2022. Thanks for listening.
1: Good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, We are glad you join us today. Thanks, Malls, for doing that. We have finished Advent, so now we're jumping back into our study of Jeremiah. And this is week number 10. We started in the fall, studying through Jeremiah. This is week number 10. We have only five more weeks after today. So uh, February 6th, we will finish with our study of Jeremiah. And then the next week, February 13th, is what around crossings we call Cheesecake Sunday. So yeah, and so what we're working really hard on right now, is some way that we can eat Eli's cheesecake through a mask. And we're not sure how that's going to work, but there's something, there's a way to do that. Because we are jumping back in, it seems appropriate that we would catch you up just a little bit, remind ourselves where we've journeyed together. Some of you missed pieces of it. Some of you haven't been here. You just joined us in Advent. We want to do our best to catch you up. To do that, just for two or three minutes here, I don't know if you've ever heard of something called the Bible Project. Is it out of Portland? Is that right? It's out of Portland. So, how many of you have heard of this? Some, yeah. This is a phenomenal resource. Uh, They say it's an education technology company that produces media to help people encounter the Bible like never before. Uh, Their mission statement is actually to help people see the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. We kind of like that. So, to help us review, to catch us up just a little bit, we're going to show you three minutes of this. Now, It still might be a bit confusing. There is a lot of uh, language of nations and kings and and all this type of stuff. But, But if nothing else, it'll be a good starting point for us today.
2: The book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice. And he even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem, taking the people into exile. And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now, this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into a scroll. Now, Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to Present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet, and he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nations, and his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment, but he also has a message of hope for the future. Now this opening perfectly summarizes the first large section, chapters 1 to 24. It's a collection of Jeremiah's writings from before the exile. And the core idea here is that Israel has broken the covenant with God and violated all the terms of the agreement they made that are written in the Torah. And in a number of ways, they've adopted the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods, building idol shrines all over the land. And Jeremiah develops the metaphor of idolatry as adultery and uses the language of prostitution, promiscuity, unfaithfulness to describe how Israel has given their allegiance to other gods. Jeremiah also repeatedly accuses Israel's leaders, the priests, the kings, the other prophets have all become corrupt. They've abandoned the Torah and the covenant, which has led to a tragic result rampant social injustice. The most vulnerable people in Israelite communities, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, were all being taken advantage of in clear violation of the laws of the Torah. And Israel's leaders didn't even seem to care. So a classic place where all of these ideas come together is in chapter seven. It's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple as if everything is just fine, but outside the temple they are worshiping other gods, and some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem, and as you read on, you discover he's talking about the Great empire of Babylon. And so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25. Israel hasn't turned back to their God. And so in the first year of Babylon's new king, Nebuchadnezzar, God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years.
0: So still on the note of review, we spent the last 10 weeks uh, in the fall going through Jeremiah uh, kind of artistically, and we've used this canvas every week um, to kind of illustrate the story uh, with our eyes and for us to kind of engage in it in a different way other than just reading the text, hearing the text uh, taught to us. So uh, when I was thinking about the best way for us to review this canvas uh, I thought it probably would not be the most efficient or best idea to just go week by week. Uh, if you are interested in knowing what we added to this canvas every week, you can go back to our YouTube videos or to the podcast, uh, and we're happy to point you to those if you're interested in that. Um, instead, I'd like for us to talk about just the process that we took to get to what we have here right now, uh, which is actually more than, than what is uh, in front of us right now. Um, So this started as a white canvas. On week one, this was blank. Caleb uh, did the work of painting this red line which symbolizes covenant. So right off the bat from week one, we have these two colors in dialogue. We have white, the blank, kind of pure, clean canvas, and we have the red line, which represents uh, covenant faithfulness, which represents God's um, protection over Israel and Israel's faithfulness to God, um, this kind of mutuality between God and Israel. Um, and week after week, the process that we've taken has been additive, which means that less and less Uh, Blank space is on this canvas, and and ultimately, we we are here with what we have right now. Um, And I could talk about all these symbols. I mean, some of them representing the the sin and the brokenness of Israel uh, through idolatry, through kind of just like false uh, prophets and false uh, preachers is what Jeremiah calls them. Um, I think in chapter 20. And then ultimately, like you see, this canvas has just become dirtied. It's not, it's not the pure canvas that it was before. And where we left off the week before Advent is actually with this canvas being painted completely black. And so our work for the next seven weeks as we journey through this story together is going to be subtractive in nature. You're gonna see this dark black canvas slowly turn uh, and make its face known uh, in a light way. Um, so you'll see, this, we'll add symbols over the next few weeks uh, as Jeremiah's narrative turns to hope into new covenant. Um, yeah, so that's kind of our means of reviewing the canvas that we've been journeying through together.
1: Yeah, again, we understand that it's, it's hard to catch up if you haven't been a part of this, but we want to at least give a baseline to start. Jeremiah is a, is a prophetic book, is what they call it. And it's called that because Jeremiah is considered a prophet. Uh, Rachel Hudson, who's our kids City pastor, has been working with the kids and has given them a definition. I think she's gone over it every week, I'm not sure, of what a prophet is. So I'd like to quote Rachel right now. This is her definition. Jeremiah was a prophet, which means that he helped point others to God because he was paying close attention to God's heart. Now, I think that's so good. And first of all, side note, how encouraging is it to know if you've got kids that they're getting that type of teaching up there? That, that's amazing to me. But throughout the book, this definition of prophet you see coming out, because Jeremiah stands before the people and he announces this doom, this judgment on both Jerusalem and the temple, as the video said, and calls for a change of heart and action to take place so that God would rescue them. What we need to remember is in the ancient world, there are all kinds of prophets. So this wasn't unique. It wasn't like, oh yeah, Israel, they have prophets. We don't. No, everybody had prophets during that time. But in this time in history, as well as in a few others, the function of the prophet was basically to be yes men. The function of the prophet was to go to the ruling powers and authorities and tell them what they wanted to hear. So the prophets of that day would go to the kings, to to those in power, and let them know how they're going to be victorious in battle, Uh, let them know how their kingdoms would be established. Basically, anything they wanted, they would go to them and prophesy that to them. Jeremiah's prophecy, as you can tell in the review, was so much different than that. His words weren't necessarily words that those in power wanted to hear at all. Now we have read some really harsh words by Jeremiah, really harsh words in the first nine weeks, judgment and and destruction and exile, all of that. So you can imagine the character of Jeremiah then uh, lived a very risky life. (laughs) He was not speaking what the powers wanted to hear. And in chapter 26, where we are today, it tells a story about a specific response by the people to this message that Jeremiah is delivering. Chapter 26. God tells Jeremiah to stand in the court of God's temple and preach to the people who come from all over Judah to worship in God's temple. From what I understand, evidently there's some kind of event going on, a festival, a feast, or something. So there are more people than normal. All over Judah, they are present. That's what some of the scholars are saying. Say everything, God says, say everything I tell you to say to them. Don't hold anything back. Just maybe they'll listen and turn back from their bad lives. Verse 4. Say to them, this is God's message. If you refuse to listen to me and live by my teaching that I revealed so plainly to you, and if you continue to refuse to listen to my servants, the prophets, that I tirelessly keep on sending to you, but you've never listened, why would you start now? Good sarcasm by God. Then I'll make this temple a pile of ruins like Shiloh, and I'll make this city nothing but a bad joke worldwide. Everybody there, so priests, prophets, people, heard Jeremiah preaching this message in the temple of God. And the response is not good, by the way. (laughs) When Jeremiah had finished his sermon, saying everything God had commanded him to say, the priests and the prophets and people all grabbed him yelling, death, you're gonna die for this. How dare you preach and using God's name, saying that the temple will become a heap of rubble like Shiloh and the city will be wiped out without a soul left in it. By the way, the like Shiloh reference there refers back to 2 Samuel 2 through 6, where with the point being that God had done this before in Shiloh, and he can do it again. That's what that reference means. So the priests, the prophets, the people, they all react the same. How dare you claim that Yahweh would say such a thing? Yahweh would never say something like that. Verse 9. So all the people mobbed Jeremiah right there in the temple itself. Because his words were viewed as heretical, as unpatriotic, as treasonous, and more importantly, and this is the biggie here, Jeremiah claims to have spoken in Yahweh's name. Officials from the royal court are told about this, what this man has done, and they leave their palace, and they come and they want to investigate this man named Jeremiah in this particular scene, investigate, and they hold this impromptu court right there on the spot. And the prophets and priests go first in their accusations. Verse 11, they say death to this man. He deserves nothing less than death. He has preached against the city. You've heard the evidence with your own ears. Well, then Jeremiah defends himself against their accusations. And he says, okay, God sent me to preach against both this temple and city and everything's been reported to you. He's basically saying, these are God's words. These are not my words. These are God's words. So do something about it, Jeremiah says. Change the way you're living. Change your behavior. Maybe God will reconsider this disaster he has threatened. I didn't say any of this on my own. God sent me and told me what to say. You've been listening to God speak, not Jeremiah. His defense is not very complicated, right? God told me to say it. I did it. I'm just repeating his words. That's all that's going on. Verse 16. Well, the court officials, backed by the people, Then handed down their ruling to the priest and prophets. Acquittal. No death sentence for this man. He has spoken to us with the authority of our God. Okay, I read that. I read the result of their judgment. And this brings about my most important question of the day. I just want to ponder this for a second. I'll come back to it. How did they decide that? (laughs) How did they decide that he has spoken to us with the authority of our God? An even bigger question that, again, I'll, I'll get to in a minute. How do we discern that in today's world? How do we know that people that are speaking to us are speaking with the authority of God? I, I've been wrestling with this question, especially in the last two or three weeks as I've worked through this text. Well, the chapter concludes this way. The chapter concludes with some older gray-headed fellows, uh, elders stepping up and reminding the people of two examples of people that they say were speaking for God in the past. I won't read the passages to you, but the first one is Micah of Morish Moresheth. He's also preached a message of judgment against the people of Judah, and the leaders did not kill him, just like in Jeremiah. Instead, they prayed for mercy, and God called off the disaster. So they give that example. But then they say there's another example similar to this of a guy named Uriah, who had also preached in the name of God. So both of these people had said they spoke in the name of God. He spoke against city and country, just like Jeremiah, Uriah did. But the king and the court decided a different verdict for him. They sentenced him to death. Here's how that played out. Uriah, afraid for his life, went into hiding in Egypt. King Jehoiakim sent a posse of men after him. They brought him back from Egypt and presented him to the king, and the king had him killed. They dumped his body unceremoniously outside the city. But in Jeremiah's case, Ahiakim, son of Shaphan, stepped forward and took his side, preventing the mob from lynching him. I was talking to Caleb Gilmore, and Caleb was saying that Ahiakim was a very powerful player in this culture, which brings up all kinds of questions. Like, why wasn't Jeremiah really killed? Was it just because someone in power stopped it? Or what? I don't have answers to that question at all. But that makes me wonder. So you have these two examples alongside Jeremiah. Jeremiah is acquitted. Mike is acquitted. Uriah is not. And that concludes the story of the day that Jeremiah almost died. Now, what is typically our way of entering into a story like that is, is approaching it as this is the story, now, what are the questions that come from reading that story? And, and often, you've heard this said a lot if you've been around, we read the Bible and we're blown away that the questions mean so much more than the answers we find in the text. The questions and where they lead us, uh, I say this a lot too, but it should, it's, this is just a talk to start a conversation about the larger questions. We read this text, so it is God's Word, but we read God's Word that should start a conversation about the larger questions that we encounter because we read this text. And in chapter 26 of Jeremiah, the people, the courts, the prophets, the priests, all these people, they want to know, and this is the question that comes for me, can a prophet really announce disaster on God's chosen people and his place? And again, their verdict, just to remind you, was Jeremiah had spoken with God's authority, which means Jeremiah lives to see another day. So back to my question then. How did they decide this? This is huge. And how do we decide it today in our world? Who gets to speak for God? Who doesn't get to speak for God? Why do these people say they're speaking with God's authority but it doesn't seem like it matches up? Can a prophet really announce disaster like Jeremiah did on Jerusalem? Can he do that then? Can they do that today, still today? Or was it only then? If not, then what is a prophet today? And are there still prophets? (laughs) Are there still prophets in our world and are they still speaking? Those are just some of the questions I have. It seems that in today's world, so many people have a message for us. Uh, And so I'm wrestling with how how do I discern what to listen to, who to listen to, in a world that is so full of voices asking me to follow them? How do, I, how do I discern that? And many, I assume many of you have struggled just like I have for years. We have each heard at times in one way or another this phrase, God told me to tell you this, <laughs> right? God told me to tell you, whether it's face to face, hey, I've been praying and God told me to tell you this or whether it's a, a pulpit to congregation God told me to tell you this word from on high or a Facebook post, a Facebook post, whatever it is, we have heard that. How are we supposed to know? And I would think that it's a source of abuse in some ways for some people because that's been used against you. And that's problematic, let alone the fact it's the number one way to break up with someone who's a Christian, right? <laughs> God told me that it's you and not me or whatever, you know, something like that, right? So so that phrase, God told me to tell you this, I'm speaking on the authority of God, is something that um, we've all heard and all experienced. From the very beginning, people have said they've heard from God. So how do we determine who has the authority to be heard? How do we know who to listen to? This seems to be an important question. Especially, I guess, in one way, it makes sense to ask that question as we start a new year. Have you heard, I read an article a few weeks ago. Have you heard of this current day prophet, and it's very important that I use air quotes here. Uh, have you heard of this prophet? His name is Peter McIndoe. Anybody heard of this guy? Uh, and he's 23 years old, and in 2017 he was in Memphis, Tennessee, and <laughs> there was a, some type of uh, rally or march going on, and there were protesters and there were counter-protesters and all this kind of stuff. And he was just overwhelmed by the whole situation and fed up with it. And the story he tells is that he, he found this poster, ripped it off the wall, it was blank on the backside, and he took it and he wrote three words on that poster, birds aren't real. And then he began holding it up and walking around, saying birds aren't real. He said it was a spontaneous joke, but it was a reflection of the absurdity that everyone was feeling as they saw all these people yelling at each other. Well, Mackendo then walked around that day and he improvised a conspiracy theory that birds aren't real. He told people that there was this greater movement in the 1970s that believed birds had been replaced with surveillance drones and that there was a massive cover up beginning in the 70s. What he didn't realize is he was being filmed. And the video was posted online, and it went viral. And so in Memphis, graffiti started showing up that said, birds aren't real. Uh, Phrases were scrawled on chalkboards, walls of local high schools. People made birds aren't real stickers. Uh, McIndoe decided to lean into this once he saw it kind of take off. Here's a quote. He said, I started to embody the character and building out the world this character belonged to. He and a friend wrote a false history of the movement, Concocted elaborate theories and produced fake documents and evidence to support his wild claims. It basically became an experiment in misinformation, he said. Over the next year, he hired an actor to portray a former CIA agent who confessed to working on bird drone surveillance. Now, that video has more than 20 million views on TikTok, which evidently is the only way to measure things anymore, I guess. Uh, He also hired adult bird truthers. to represent the movement in videos that spread all over Instagram. He actually travels around the country communicating his, again, prophetic message. Here's a picture of the van he drives in. This is the article that I read. Birds aren't real, or are they? Inside a Gen Z conspiracy theory. The article came out, again, about three weeks ago. Have you heard of, anybody heard of this movement? Yeah, a few, yeah. So it tells in the article how are these massive billboards popping up all over, like this one. This is my favorite, because it says birds aren't real, and then there are birds on the top. That's my favorite. So last month, in the Bay Area, followers of Birds Aren't Real protested outside Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco to demand that the company change its bird logo. So there they're outside of that. Hundreds of thousands of young people have joined this movement wearing birds aren't real t-shirts, swarming rallies and spreading the slogans. Here's another picture of some of them. Um, this, this next picture is my favorite. Uh, you can go ahead and put up their malls. This is a picture of McIndoe burning a St. Louis Cardinals flag. You can see the arch there in St. Louis. He, he's having a satirical protest of the, birds, of the baseball team's pro-bird logo in July. So now, as a Cubs fan, I find great joy in this, by the way, just just so you know. Here's the thing. The creator of Birds Aren't Real and the so-called movement of followers, they say they're in on the joke. They know that birds aren't, are in fact real (laughs) and that the theory is made up. What Birds Aren't Real truly is, they say, is a parody social movement with a purpose. Here's another picture. The idea is meant to be preposterous, they say. They admit to being false prophets the movement has become a way to collectively grapple with experiences of not knowing who and what to believe. Here's a quote from the article. Birds aren't real is not a shallow satire of conspiracies from the outside. It is from the deep inside, he says. A lot of people in our generation feel the lunacy in all this, and birds aren't real has been a way for people to process that. I have a lot of excitement for what the future of this could be as an actual force for good, he says. And there's great debate on that. Yes, we have been intentionally spreading misinformation for the past four years, but it's, with a per- but it's with a purpose, he says. It's about holding up a mirror to America in the internet age. I like that a little bit. I don't think we like what we see when we look in the mirror. What this crazy movement exposes to me is that I'm I'm just not sure we know who we should listen to or even how to listen. I come back to my most important question here. How in the world am I supposed to know who to believe anymore? And when it comes to faith in God, how am I supposed to trust anyone to speak for God to me? When so much has been done to simply manipulate and support a cause or an ideology... Or is simply an expression of power and position and influence? Again, these are my questions. I'm just starting the discussion. I'm just starting the conversation. Everyone seems to have a message from God. How do we discern who and what to listen to in the world? How do we determine for ourselves how to hear God? So Dallas Willard, uh, great scholar, uh, spiritual formation guru, that type of thing. He wrote a book called Hearing God. And in the book he said this. We all know what foolishness sometimes follows on the heels of the words, God told me. Indeed, we all know not only what foolishness, but even what tragedies can come when people say these words, God told me. Here's more from the book. We might need to know, we need to know what the voice of God is like, how it comes and what kinds of things God might say if we're to protect ourselves and those around us. Otherwise, we're on the mercy we are at the mercy of ideas from others who are malicious or who are being carried away with a voice contrary to God, which they themselves may not understand. When facing the mad religionist or blind legalist, we have no recourse, no place to stand if we do not have firsthand experience of hearing God's voice held safely within a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. So I believe those thoughts from Willard are just the tip of the iceberg of this discussion. But I also think, it, I think the New Year's a good time to begin asking those questions. The questions, and here they are, are listed. Um, how do I actually hear God practically day to day in my life? How do I hear the voice of God through others? How do I know whether to trust the voices in my life or not? Are we only listening to things that confirm a theology, ideology that we already have? Or are we allowing God to teach us new things, and deeper things, things about himself? How do I know if birds are real or not? By the way, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, pun intended. They are real, okay? I, I think we got to wrestle to answer these questions. Again, I, I think the new year is a good time to think about this. And I, I think there's some things that, that I need to be able to honestly wrestle with these questions. and and this list is long, I just, there are three or four that popped out to me. I think we need a sincere curiosity. I think we need a healthy skepticism. I think we need a loving community that we can trust to come alongside us. Some of you have that in this place. I think we need a rhythm of life, individually and communally, that helps us make space to listen well. How can I hear God if I never have a space just to sit and listen? How can that happen? Again, so many things can be on this list. This This is just the start of the conversation. Ultimately, I think we have to determine what is the way, here's a better way to think about it, what is the filter through which we are to listen to or for God? In this community, the Crossings community, I, I think the answer to that question for us, and and my apologies if this seems to be oversimplistic. Um, I think for us, for something to be true at its foundation, for any word given to us to be right and good, I think it must match up with the heart of God, and the ways of Jesus. The heart of God and the ways of Jesus. What is the heart of God in this situation for these people, for this neighborhood, for this family? What is the heart of God? What is the ways of Jesus in this situation, that situation? It would make sense, I think, for anything spoken from God at a minimum to fit under those two statements. Heart of God, ways of Jesus. Regardless of who else it lines up with, regardless of who else is saying it, regardless of who else is spewing it, yelling it, or writing it, our filter has to be, is it true to the heart of God and the ways of Jesus? I actually have a little take-home assignment for you. Um, Make a list and write heart of God and write down everything you have experienced, read, understand, about the heart of God. He's compassionate. He gives grace, mercy. He doesn't like when we break our relationship. And make another list, the ways of Jesus. What are the postures of Jesus? What are the priorities of Jesus? Who did he spend time with? How did he go about it? Where was he, where was he focused? Again, this is a place to start. And I don't know if you're a resolution type of person. I'm not really but I think that list would be a really good resolution list. You know what I'm saying? Heart of God, Ways of Jesus. January 2nd seems like a really good time to hit reset. To start from the basic foundation. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, this prophet speaks a message from God. Words that are in total alignment with God. Words about covenant, idols, et cetera, et cetera. The big picture of Jeremiah, I think, is he's calling people back to God's heart. And he's calling them forward to put the world back together. Back to God to follow in his ways. So for 2022, again, if you're the resolution type, I would direct you back to the prophetic words of Miss Rachel Hudson, who said Jeremiah was a prophet, which means that he helped point others to God because he was paying close attention to God's heart. My hope would be that 2022 would be somewhat prophetic for us. May it be a year where we help to point others to God because we are paying such close attention to God's heart and to the ways of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it, 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 it does seem complex and overwhelming sometimes to To think about hearing you, trusting the words that come to us that are supposedly from you. Um, So help us sort through those questions and help us to wrestle with them well. And help us to consider what is the filter? What is the baseline? What is the way that we go about um, hearing you in our lives? Yeah, help us to do that. Jesus, pray.